As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children. That was really when I started to see the marginalisation of those officers The vast majority didn't feel anybody cared about them. They felt totally unvalidated for what they do. And so there's this sort of like dramatic dichotomy between the danger that they lived and worked in 
the psychological and physical injuries that they are experiencing, and yet this view that no one gives the staff. I can't really truly imagine what it's like to be in a job where you have to be vigilant all the time, being ready to attend to traumatic and unpredictable situations. But that's what prison officers have to do every day. Our guest today is social worker and therapist Bruce Perham. He's worked with hundreds of officers and he's written a book called Code Blue, Prison Officer in Danger, about trauma and PTSD in these first responders. Through the course of his years of going in and out of prisons and hearing the day-to-day experiences of prison officers, Bruce came to understand that he was dealing with professionals expected to run towards unpredictably dangerous situations at any moment in the course of a workday. It's a high-risk occupation, and it's one that we, as a general public, don't really know much about. Hey Bruce, um, lovely to talk to you today. So you're Bruce Perham and you've written a book called Code Blue, Prison Officer in Danger. And it's a really interesting, quite gripping book about the the role of prison officers and the fact that they are often subjected to, you know, a lot of trauma and danger in their role. But before we um, talk about that, Bruce, tell us a bit about who you are and, and, and your background in leading up to writing this book. Absolutely. Uh, I'm a mental health um, social worker, um, family therapist and narrative therapist. Very few people have ever heard of the, of the narrative. Um, about 13 years ago, I, I decided to start working privately um, for a whole variety of, uh, of reasons. One, just to be free and not, not to be working within systems. Um, and a friend of mine was working at an employee assistance provider um, company and he said, look, shoot in your CV and um, uh, we might take you on, which they did. And it was not long after joining them, I was sent out to a prison to do what is called a critical incident debriefing. I was called into this prison, uh, it was pretty early in the morning, it was about six o'clock and uh, a prisoner had taken their own life and uh, in very stressful circumstances. And so the aim of the session was really to sit with the officers that had been involved in that. And uh, I didn't know it at the time, but I know now how traumatised officers are by those experiences. And so we just sat together as a group talking about what they'd been, what they'd been through, what they'd experienced. They shared a lot with each other which, um, you know, was really, uh, you know, so important uh, for people to have the opportunity to talk through those um, reactions. So up until that point where you had your first real encounter with a prison environment, what had been your work like to date? Because you've been a social worker for a number of years. Most of my working life had really been spent um, in chronic health and disability, um, and I'd worked at the MS Society for 15 years as the senior social worker there and moved from there to work at Alzheimer's Australia, uh, working with people that had a family member with dementia. So in, in moving into private practice, it just meant it was going to be different, different type of work and, uh, uh, you know, that I was just, you know, it just evolved that in going into the prison and then 
um, I actually started to go into that same prison monthly to see officers in the prison, uh, which I still do the 12 years later in a couple of other prisons as well. So it just sort of evolved that I was going in and out of prisons a lot. And what that then led me into is that whole world of trauma and uh, and trauma reactions. Uh, and also through EAP, I saw a lot of police as well. Um, haven't really referenced that work that much in Code Blue, uh, focused on prison officers. But in seeing police and prison officers, there's a lot in common in terms of the degree of trauma they get exposed to. So it just engaged me, actually. I just got more and more interested in the impact that this was having. And when we talk about EAP, we're talking about employee assistance programs that organisations have available um, for their employees. But when you had that first encounter where you were talking to the officers who had been involved in the situation in the aftermath after a prisoner had taken their own life, were you prepared for that? I mean, what, what was the extent of the kind of trauma incidents that you had dealt with in your career thus far? I dealt with different types of trauma. You know, a diagnosis of MS for people and their family members is a uh, often very traumatic um, to, in particular, it's a young person's disease to be told, you know, in your 20s that you have an incurable um, neurological illness. But uh, it's a different type of, of, of trauma. So, you know, I'd certainly sat with people that were very full of grief and quite traumatised by, you know, what was happening to them. This was a different type of trauma, but I, I certainly remember knowing very little about, I knew nothing about the work of prison officers. So, I was certainly very aware it was going into an environment I knew nothing about, but um, probably you, you just develop a capacity to do that, um, you know, and I still go into situations where I know nothing about the, the context of what I'm going into, but you just sort of learn to sit and to listen and to respond to what people are saying. So, yeah, I, 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 and I knew when I came out, I thought this is a whole different world of... Um, of what these officers had, had to do. And as you did more visits to the um, the prisons, was that mainly to support prison officers? Look, it was it was not solely prison officers. It was really anybody that, that worked in the in the prison. Um, and it's probably, you know, as a general comment, um, I've also learned that everybody that works in a prison is affected in some way. And, and a lot of different staff have shared that with me. And uh, so it's not, not only those that are the officers that are working directly with prisoners, but you know, everybody's impacted um, in some way. As, as an outsider, uh, prisons are very isolated workplaces and, and um, they can't get out for lunch because it just takes too long to get in and out of the prison. Um, so they don't, go to meetings they don't they don't they never leave the prison and um so they're quite dark environments in terms of uh you know very few people come in and out of a prison you know so they're not normal workplaces and um and and to me that adds to 
it adds to the complexity of, um, you know, their exposure isn't like normal workplaces. You know, they don't get exposed in the way that we get exposed to different experiences. Um, so there are lots of things like that that really, you know, sort of hit me as being quite, quite different. And and yet when you'd say that to people, I'd say, well, that's, we, we, we didn't even think of that. Um, it's just what we do. It's, it's the nature of the job. But um, it all kind of makes it a very unique workplace. When was it that you started to really begin to think or understand that, you know, there's something here, this is a cohort of employees who are particularly vulnerable to, to trauma, to PTSD. What were some of the things that you were, you were picking up in your, um, in your dealings with them? That's it, a really good question. I, I reference it in Code Blue um, in terms of that in 2015, um, a couple of staff from one of the prisons and ops manager and, and the training coordinator uh, contacted me and uh, talked to me about their concern about the um, impact that uh, in particular the self-harming of the prisoners was having on staff and and they're, um, they're dealing with that. So they asked me whether I'd be interested to put together a training program for that. And um, one of the officers said to me, um, but don't, don't come out with your overheads. Uh, you lose my officers if you come out with an overhead. I just want you to come and talk to them. And I just want you to come and talk to them about their mental health. Um, so what I, what I then decided to do was I, I did a series of focus groups with about four, four groups of 10 officers at that prison where the, the idea of that was I was just going out to sit and talk to them about, tell me about what it's like to be a prison officer. And, uh, and they did, you know, they shared what it was like. And I then went away and developed a, sort of a handout, I'd call it, on managing stress and dealing with trauma. Um, it, was, it was sort of in a way where I was putting that together as a training program. Um, the riot occurred at the Remand Centre in 2015. So it was, it was after I'd started to put that paper together. And I spent a lot of time out there. I spent about three weeks in the five weeks following the riot, um, sitting with officers that have been highly traumatised about that experience. Um, and then in 2016, uh, a wonderful man in at the department got funding for me to run this training program in the four high security prisons. So that was 10 sessions in each prison. So that was 40 sessions. I probably sat with more than 500 prison officers. You know, we all have uh, stereotypical views of what prison officers do. But, you know, in a way I was given a, an insight into there's just so much more complexity here than what I'd ever really ever stopped to, to think about. And when we talk about the prisons you work in and the particular rights we're talking about in Melbourne, and people will be quite aware of that vision of seeing um, prisoners up on the roofs and, and it was qu quite chaotic. Can you tell us a bit about what actually happened during those riots and some of the, um, the stuff that you were, you were hearing? I can generally, um, because there's lots of, of, of general points come out of it, and particularly from a, a, a trauma point of view. And I often kind of say to people, I don't look at things from an organisational point of view, I look at things from a psychological point of view. 
And um, there was a lot came out of that uh, that I riot that I had nothing to do in no involvement with, but in terms of how how to um, you know prevent that from happening again and 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 how to rebuild that prison and all of that. And I know not, nothing about that. But from a psychological point of view, that um, and I've learned it over and over again that that the the more you feel in fear of of your life, um, the higher the psychological reaction to it is, is a really broad generalisation. So that even though, which is a miracle, you know, nobody was injured in that riot. I mean, I think someone might have done an ACL knee injury or there were some prisoners that were uh, might have had concussion. You know, there were really minor injuries came out of that riot. Um, and it was, it could have been 15 people could have been killed. You know, it could have been a terrible outcome. Uh, but in a way that that, that that doesn't mitigate the psychological reaction that officers had that genuinely were in fear of their lives and uh, um, even though it turned out okay. So, so the ramification of that for a lot of the officers was it, um, it was beyond the scale, you know, they, they are used to uh, working in danger, you know, they they, uh, they know that's a part of their job. The right was off the scale in terms of the prisoners had were, were in control of the prison and they had weapons, they had bulldozers, they had all sorts of things. So, so from a psychological point of view, you know, nobody had ever been through anything like that and, and it, it, it could have got unbelievably out of hand and it was just fortunate that it didn't. So, yeah, so it was just an off the scale experience, but but because of the the fear that the officers had of what could happen to them, uh, it was psychologically really traumatic. Yeah, and I think um, I mean, obviously, prison officers are working with uh, a traumatized cohort of clients. I guess they're the prison uh, the prisoners are their clients. These are people who are you know traumatized, um, unwell dangerous in circumstances so it's not your usual um people that you're that are your customers so to speak are they absolutely not and and i i do talk about that in the book in in you know there are some very psychiatrically ill prisoners that um you know uh, that uh, and there's a, a well known that a lot shouldn't be in the prison system but they are because there's nowhere else for them to be and um, and obviously, you know, uh, prisoners that have a, a high capacity towards violence uh, to each other or to, or to officers. Um, so, you know, they do deal with a very difficult client group, if, if we want to put it like that. Um, and I really need to be clear, not all prisoners, it's some prisoners, you know, some prisoners are very compliant. Um, they know they've done something wrong. They know that they're in prison. They know that they need to do their time and they do that uh, cooperating. You know, it's just that the, you know, not not everybody is that predictable, and um, events happen and and things happen, and officers have to be able to deal with that. So, but it is a very challenging uh, group of people, and in some of the units in the prisons that say have um, have those prisoners and deal with those prisoners, they never don't have a sense of danger or you know and, and it's probably certainly make the point in the book they're a very hyper vigilant group of people because their work demands that they be hyper vigilant and um, anybody that's done that type of work you can't turn that hyper vigilance off um, and so most officers would acknowledge 
that where you and I might run at you know seventy percent, eighty percent at work, and forty percent out of work, they run at eighty percent twenty four seven. Um, and and look, I was, and a lot of this stuff just sort of goes unnoticed. It's sort of like it gets put down as well. It's the job, and and it is the job, but and not just in it with correction officer work, any first responder work. Um, there's often really not the analysis of well, what is the psychological impact of this work over and over again. Uh, there's often very little discussion around any of that, um, and yet. Uh, probably due to being going in and out of the prisons for so long, where you start to see, you know, the the long term impact. Um, it's very much what Code Blue's about in terms of okay, there's just a lot here that we need to be far more aware about. Yeah, I mean, we've we've spoken to, um, you know, a number of people for Australian True Crime podcast about post traumatic stress disorder, first responders. We also know that we do have prison officers listen to our program, and we've spoken to a former prison officer a number of times, which is an incredibly popular episode because they were talking about the old school stories of Pentridge, you know, the crims and those kind of stories that we're really interested in. But I guess it kind of masked maybe the seriousness of the kind of work and the danger of the kind of work that that was being done. Is that what you have found that prison officers may downplay um, what they do day to day because it's just too hard to explain to people? Uh, Look, absolutely. In a lot of offices will say, they, and they're right, they can't take it home to their families because it's too traumatic. And uh, the book referenced that in terms of Neil, um, the officer that I'd known for a long time. And uh, I think there's a wonderful bit there and just says, I, I can't deal with this anymore. I can't, don't tell me about that serial killer. I just can't deal with it anymore. So because we're dealing with top end trauma, really, and as I've said to a few people, you know, I haven't put the worst examples in the book. I've gone maybe upper middle. I could have put um, of what officers have shared with me, higher levels of trauma. So it's not that I've elevated what's in the book. I've actually tried to not overwhelm people with the level of what officers deal with. Any officer that reads it will go, well, yeah, there's worse than that, um, that we deal with. So we, we're kind of really confronting off the scale uh, trauma experiences in all sorts of um, of ways. And you know, and I guess what I'm reflecting is it's not really understood, and it is a bit like what you said. You know, if you, and and the other thing I say on the on the because you know Neil worked in in Pentridge, he comes from those old Pentridge days. You know that the the system has changed enormously, and I had to tread very carefully on on in terms of how the situation was dealt with in the Pentridge era, as opposed to how it's dealt with now. And there's been huge um uh transformation of of that so a lot of those older prison officers will tell you the system is now totally different and and the book picks it up because it's um i've had a few people say to me well the book's anti-management and i say no it's not anti-management it's reflecting what the officers have told me so that needs to be dealt with in terms of that's what a lot of officers have told me that in terms of how they they feel the um, 
you know, they've missed out in a way in terms of that, yes, the, the rules have changed and, and, and in many ways quite rightly, but the mental health of the officers hasn't kept up. Bruce, you mentioned Neil um, and his family, and he does feature quite a bit in the book, his story. It sort of seems to be very representative of um, experiences of, of prison officers. Can you tell us a bit about Neil and how you came to know him? I, I actually, um, and, and this is what uh, any counsellor reading the book will, you know, pick up the uh, the fine line in, in terms of uh um, our two wives worked together, you know, like 30 or more years ago. So I got to meet Neil through that. And, um, you know, we'd have a barbecue, we'd go out to dinner and he'd, he'd met, talk about his work. And um, I never really fully understood, uh, you know, back then, I, you know, it was sort of like, I'd sort of think, oh, wow, you know, that's amazing. Um, it was when uh, I started working at the same prison and uh, I'd bump into him from time to time and uh, and that's all in the book. And then on one occasion he came to see me and he said, can I see you? I really need to talk to you. And then we just worked out, well, look, as long as it's only about work, um, because I knew him, you know, personally, um, I can't talk to you about anything else, but I can talk to you about work. I was comfortable to do that. And so then I saw him several times uh, in some of these work um, related incidences. So from a counselling point of view, you know, you could really take the high ground and say, oh, well, I shouldn't have done that. It's unethical. And um, probably writing the book is unethical in a way. Um, but I just made the decision that, you know, you say to me, you know, I, I'd, I'd rather talk to you than someone I don't know. And I think that's a huge issue for officers. And anyway, so we had these conversations, but what, what it enabled me to do was in a funny sort of way, which I saw as a good thing, it made me far more aware of when I felt that he was really starting to go under. And I, I, it gave me an insight into into that that I might not have got if I hadn't known him um, so well. And, and, and certainly it enabled me to go back and interview him uh, for the book. And he was very keen and his family was very keen to do it. But, and a lot of it didn't make the book, you know, from an editing process, but it, it was um, it was very hard for him to relive some of that stuff. And, and, and psychologically, I had to back myself that I could support him, him through that. But there'd be psychological critics of going and doing those interviews with him. Uh, he would now say that, um, that was really helpful for him. Although at different times he said he just wished he could have bashed my head in. <laughs> because, you know, when you revisit trauma, it's painful. And I'm really aware of people can read the book and if they've been traumatised, it brings that back. Um, and I've had to have a, a belief that um, painful in the short term, beneficial in the long term. And... Uh, and I think Neil would would say that he got a lot out of those interviews, and I know that uh, his wife Anne did um, as well, um, because uh, you know, and I, I touch on it. The family experience is totally hidden, <laughs> and yet all all these first responders, you know, police, prison officers, they go home to their families, and and their families have to, you know, manage the short fuse and and um, the trauma reactions. And so it was really, in a way, quite a privilege to sit with them and talk about that and and, uh, and about uh, Neil's PTSD 
and how we dealt with that. Have you um, had good supportive interactions with your training and, and with the book? I know it's only just out, but with, um, I guess, management? Because, look, we all know that um, management is pretty much doing the best they can with what they have got and understand and with the confines within the confines of a lot of factors. But how have you been received, I guess, by the upper um, echelons of of the industry? Look, it's, in the way the book's confronting, you know, in all sorts of different ways, and um, it's hard for – I've had some feedback, uh, uh, not, a, not a lot, but it, it's, it's confronting in terms of what needs to be done and the amount of work that needs to be done to, to really provide the level of support that people need. And in also, you know, generally that there's a lot of focus on post-PTSD that officers and police and, and people experiencing PTSD um, get the support and get, you know, um, proper support. The jury's really out in terms of, okay, but what do we do while people are experiencing these jobs to minimise the risk of them developing PTSD? And, and, and look, as a, as a general point, you know, they're all essential occupations. We need prison officers. We need police. We need fireys. We need nurses. We need all of these occupations. But if you step back and look at it as a byproduct of people doing these occupations, they often end up psychologically damaged severely. Sometimes, which PTSD is a severe, um, uh, a severe you know situation to deal with due to them doing their work. So. We, all, we need these occupations. I think historically the, the need to have them has kind of blinded us a bit to the increasing awareness of, but in actual fact, this work is psychologically damaging. And in Code Blue, I've put in a little bit of the neuroscience from Dr. John Arden, who, as I mentioned in the book that I met, you know, there's increasing neuroscience awareness around exposure to accumulative trauma has major consequences. We know that. <laughs> Anyone that's got PTSD will tell us that. And it's not criticism, it's just reality. The need to deliver the service has become more the focus than, well, but how do we support the people delivering it? Now, everyone will say, oh, but we're doing everything we can, and they are, but it just needs to go a lot deeper. I really need to, and 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 it will be resources. You know, how do we um, give prison officers a sense of validation? That's not going to be easy. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. 
Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I was going to ask, you know, we know we know that um, first responders are police, you know, medical staff, prison officers obviously are first responders, but you don't necessarily think of them in that way. And you do say in the book that they're probably on the lower rung of that awareness of first responders. Why is that? I think because we don't see it. I mean, I only got an understanding of it because I was able to go in and have access to what they do and also to sit in those critical incident debriefings and hear what they've experienced. And uh, um, so I was very lucky, very privileged to be able to get the exposure to what they do. And I would have not had any idea uh, of... um, you know, before going in there, I wouldn't, you know, just drive past a prison and go, it's a prison, you know. So I think because it's uh, because it's isolated, you know, in a way, if you look at other first responders, you know, you see the police attending things like Burke Street, you you see the fireys attending the fires, you, you, you know, at the moment, we're getting a lot of exposure to the trauma that the nursing and medical staff are experiencing. So it makes it a lot easier to go, oh, yeah, that would be so hard, you know, in that type of work. Um, whereas we don't see, we don't hear or see of anything that prison officers do. And 80% of what they do is confidential. So they can't tell you, oh, well, I was here or I did this or I was involved or I was there when that prisoner came in. All of that's confidential. And and they're bound by confidentiality uh, through their employment. They're not, you know, so, so it, that they're not able to tell people and they're not able to go public. And so how would anyone know what they do? And, um, and, and nor can them, you know, management or the department can be, can't, can't, are not in a position to be promoting what prison officers do. So it's just an anomaly of the, the fact that you put all the factors together and no one knows what they do. Um, and I, th- I think that what, what we do read is the, uh, the negativity of what they do, you know, like with the recent IBAC report, you know, those cases of, of corruption or, um, you know, whatever. And, 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 you know, and that's what IBAC is for, to investigate that and, that. and that all needs to be investigated. But, you know, sometimes I think when people read that, they then t- go the next step and go, oh, they're all like that. And I was actually telling a, a long-term colleague, so what are you doing these days? And I said, I'm 
do a lot of a lot of work with prison officers and 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 she commented well they just take drugs into them don't they <laughs> and i said well maybe one or two do but there's about 6000 prison officers in this state and i can tell you you know 99.5% go in and give their everything to what they do and and i think as as neil reflects in the book that i think a lot of officers will relate to i think at one point he says we wear our losses hard <laughs> when we lose a prisoner there's no joy in that we wear it hard and we will go over and over and over and over did we do something wrong? And he gives an example of that. With um, so so I, so I think all of that's just not seen, and and um, and it needs to be seen, but it's very hard to get it seen. Yeah, I know. Look, when we spoke to um, the former Pentridge guard, I mean, we we were joking around a bit with some of the stories, but you know, they are quite serious. And I actually had a an off the record chat with a prison officer a little while ago who, um, you know, work, works as a prison officer and um, said people just don't understand the kind of stuff we do but also mentioned that, yeah, when something goes wrong, when you hear of a, um, a prison officer doing something like, yeah, taking drugs in or, God forbid, having some sort of relationship with a prisoner, it's really hard to take because it then kind of makes everyone think, oh, well, you know, they're just all off doing it and, and, and they feel angry and betrayed. Well, and that, that adds to the complexity. Um, you know, if you look at it at the moment in, in uh, what we're seeing, you know, the, the excessive force, you know, um, and it's certainly uh, yeah, very topical at the moment in terms of, you know, the, what's happening in the community and do officers use excessive force, do prison officers use excessive force? But that doesn't encompass the fact that, you know, these are highly complex psychological environments to work. And, um, and I, you know, I was thinking the other day, you know, in the situation where someone does use excessive force and, you know, and it was rightly investigated and all of that, you know, there's very little in terms of, well, what was happening there when the person used excessive force? And if you actually then look at the, the long-term exposure to trauma, I mean, I, I'm guessing, but I would guess that um, the wearing down of resilience, the um, repeated exposure to dealing with these traumatic events, and then you you go into a highly um, uh, traumatic scenario where quick decisions have to be made, that officers are not always going to get it right. And, um, you know, in a way is uh, when someone uses excessive force, is, is that sort of uh, uh, connected to the burnout, the exhaustion, the, you know, not thinking straight. Um, and it, it's, you know, when, when you talk to officers that say, I I'm not quite sure like right now, but certainly back in 2016, where they could do seven to 10 shifts in a row, um, or be rung up on, on a day off to go, can you come in? We're short-staffed and they go in when they really shouldn't go in because they actually need the time off, but, but they go in. And on day eight, at the, near the end of a shift, you've got a code where you've got to arrive there, you're fatigued, you're exhausted. You know, maybe you, you two weeks before you're involved in a, a traumatic um experience and then you've got to make an on the moment decision about how things are going to be dealt with um, knowing that if you get it wrong you will pay a price and um, so I just think there's not enough attention 
paid to, well, do we really need to be more aware of when officers might be starting to get to that point where there's more intervention um, strategies rather than they just go into a situation where they don't handle it um, in, in the way that they m might have. And it's particularly important because the, the, the prisoners who the prison officers are looking after are particularly vulnerable and they do need the prison officers to be at their best, essentially, don't they, for, because, you know, they need their, their care and their oversight. Absolutely. That takes me into another general um, point. In, in, and, and look at that. I'm only talking from my own perception. You know, I, I don't access um, what thinking is within these fields. It's really my own um, perception. But there's a high expectation on prison officers these days to role model, mentor prisoners um, a, a, to be a critical point in their in the rehabilitation you know, process. Um, what Code Blue does is raises the issue that that's not working. <laughs> and, um, you know, and yes, there's no doubt that prison officers, uh, that a prisoner will spend, you know, I don't know what, but 96, 97% of their time will be spent with, with prison officers. So they are critical in that, in that role, but it's been an expectation put on them rather than it's one that I think is really understood and 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 Blue is pretty blunt in terms of the vast majority of officers don't see that as their role. Um, some do. Some are very committed to case management and really want to work more with the prisoners, but the vast majority don't. And um, I was doing a session at a, a rural prison with the senior manager, senior prison officers. And it, we almost had a bit of a laugh, you know, when one of the uh, officers said, he said, well, yeah, my staff hate, hate doing them. And it, well, it's what called their case management. They sit with the prisoner and they work out, you know, goals and stuff like that. He said, well, my officers hate it. And I have to tell them they have to do it. And then he said, in actual fact, when you think about it, the prisoners hate it too. So everyone had a bit of a laugh about his two people that hate the process um, sitting together to work out something. Now, you know, if you step outside of that and you think, well, no change occurs if two people don't want to do it. And, and so what I, I'm really trying to say in Code Blue is, well, that needs to be addressed. You know, if we're talking about rehabilitating prisoners and we're talking about that um, you know, the, the main responsibility of that is going to rest with prison officers, well, then we can't have them at such low morale. They actually need to be recognised for the skills that they have. And, and I often say, no, no one will read prisoner behaviour better than a prison officer. And, you know, their capacity, you know, and I sit in, in, in the unit sometime and I watch them scanning and I watch them working out, keeping an eye on what prisoners are with other prisoners and what's happening. You know, they really have a lot of skills that are just not utilised and nobody even bothers, you know, to ask them. So if we're ever going to get anywhere with rehabilitating prisoners, um, a lot more attention needs to be paid to the people that we're delegating that responsibility to. And there's a bit in, 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 in Code Blue where Neil references that and he references his despair at seeing these prisoners come back and how he really thought that maybe they're going to make it this time and they come back.
Now, um, you also detail in the book, you you went to the United States and did some research, had some meetings, and, and that was very interesting to read. And it sounds like, you know, America's probably around 10 to 20 years kind of ahead of maybe this thinking. I'm not sure how successful it is in application, but can you tell us about some of the stuff that you learnt over there? Look, it, it, it was really interesting to do it. And um, I, I can't exactly remember how I came across um, Katerina, um, and you know, I mentioned her in the book, um, Katerina Spinaris, but um, someone had informed me of her course um, that is actually, it was called From Correction Fatigue to Fulfillment. And um, I was the first counsellor that ever went and did it, um, that it's a peer education training model. So she trains uh, prison officers to go back into their prison and deliver this this training. Um, in going over there, I mean, it's a brilliant training um, program and she picks up um, the issue of correction fatigue, which we would probably more call burnout here. Um, and then uh, the second half of the day is on, you know, what uh, some of the ideas around, well, how do we turn this into being a fulfilling career? And uh, so it's a great training model and there's nothing here like it. And um, it's her, just reflects out of her 20 years of doing, you know, this type of work and the, um, the pain that she's seen over the years uh, of the work that she's done through the centre that she set up. So, so it was really she's quite an inspirational person to look at that her recognition of um, of of it, and so really matched what I was, you know, feeling here. Um, and I guess one of my hopes out of the book uh, will be that that training gets more picked up because uh, you know we need to be doing more of that type of training we need to when when I did the training in 2016 and I sat with these groups of officers every group and I mean every group back then and I really don't think it'd be much different now and COVID over the last couple of years has been no training so um, every group said to me we have never sat together in a group and talked about our mental health ever um, and I believe them and so uh, so that and and there's a, a lot of practical reasons and shift work and you know there's a lot of reasons why training is difficult within these environments and I understand that, but the bringing people together and actually talking about their experience and then in, in as a group you know looking at ways of um, well how do we deal with some of these issues you know how do we deal with some of these um, you know mental health issues and and just while I'm on it you know if you look at the, uh, one of the key things in, in the trauma literature is preparing people for what they are stepping into. And I had a police officer say to me years ago, he said, you know, joining the police force is like going into a, a railway tunnel, but no one told you a train was coming. And I, I think that so captures, and, and I'm not criticising necessarily, but you know, make a difference, you know, come us, come and work for us and make a difference, make a contribution, um, you know, because these industries need to recruit 
you know, then they do, obviously. If you've got people going out at the other end that are, uh, you know, PTSD and traumatised and high turnover, you can't argue that there's not high turnover in these populations. You have to keep bringing new people in. Well, if you had a promotion campaign about, you know, read code blue before you go and be a prison officer, I'm well aware half of the people wouldn't go in and be a prison officer. But somewhere there needs to be a fine line between you need to know what you're stepping into. Yeah, I was actually going to ask you about that because I thought, well, where's the opportunity to give people a, a realistic assessment of the kind of work that they will be going into? Because, yeah, as you said, no one goes in thinking X, Y or Z. But, you know, what we've heard from um, many people we've spoken to with PTSD is that it's exposure to multiple traumas. You know, uh, someone may encounter a few traumas in their life or, or I don't know, every trauma is different, but these kind of careers have multiple, you know, could be daily. Absolutely. And um, so you've got that whole issue of, well, you want people to take these occupations on, but what do we need to provide them to be alert to several things, you know, the need to look after themselves, you know, and often I do sessions with, with, with graduates, uh, prison officer trainees, um, and it's very difficult for them when you don't know what you're stepping into unless you've been in the police or military. It's very hard at the beginning to know how you're going to manage. Um, anecdotally, people tell me that probably about 50% of the of the trainees leave within the first two years. Now I've got no idea whether that's true or not or what. I don't know, but I do know a lot of officers will go. Um, this isn't for me. You know, this wasn't what I was cut out to do. Um, I had one officer say to me, he was very honest. He was pretty new, and he said, "You know, mate, when you when you do a cell count where all the prisoners have to stand outside their cell, and he said when they all just stare at you." He said, it, it's the most unnerving thing you can ever experience. And yeah, a lot of officers would say, oh, I don't even think about that. But it captures that kind of, um, and he said, I can't cope with it. It's, it's, it's just too much for me to cope with. So I think he was certainly going to, you know, get himself out in, into something else. So, so it, it, I just, you know, it's, it's the same mantra, you know, these things need to be looked at and, and okay, how do we do this better? How do we prepare officers for the things that they will, will need to be able to do? And that what, you know, and I often say in terms of, I need, I need to get the new trainees, we need to sit with them at three months, at six months, at nine months to give them an opportunity to review how they're going when they got to their, the, the first trauma event or their codes or how are they going with that to get some discussion. Um, it's it's difficult to do within the structure, but if you're looking at how do we do this best, you know, in those early couple of years, you really need to be talking about your reaction to events, to, to process them, because a lot of the examples that come out down the track in Code Blue, and I talk about it in terms of officers that disassociate. So if you do it long enough, and I think I put it in about, you know, the, the officer that was, it was very about, they cut their legs off, cut their arms off and cut anything off, I don't care. And I really thought about that comment, you know, if you're so disassociated from it, because that's the only way you can deal 
with it and you never talk about it, there's just a risk that it all gets bottled up and um, and, and then people don't talk about it, but they, they disassociate from it. If you could unpack that a bit more for me, that disassociation, because it, it sounds like, you know, um, it's a protection mechanism, but then it, it, it's not useful to that officer and it's not useful to the prisoners either because, you know, they need need the care and the attention. So can you just explain a little bit more about that? Absolutely. Um, it Because of the, you know, if... And, and the system has really led itself to the get back on the horse in the prison pinterage days or jump back on the horse, don't let the crim see that they've beaten you. Um, Neil talks about that, that, you know, get your nose busted, get your ribs busted, get back there, bandaged up as soon as you can, show them that. So there's this whole um, thinking around the, the getting back on the horse um, so that you move on, you don't process it. And... It's been extraordinarily difficult for him to process the emotional reactions because we shelve them and we don't, you know, we just shelve them. And then what happens is you've got all of these experiences that start to mount up and probably all of the officers, police or prison officers that have got PTSD, uh, talk about the trigger. That's why I talk about the trigger so much in, in Code Blue because we just become vulnerable to a trigger. And, you know, the number of officers, prison and police that I've sat with that have said that was by no means the worst situation I've been in, but it's undone me and I don't know why. And uh, um, and it's a little bit like I might say sometimes you can be OK on Friday, but you're not OK on Monday and it can happen that quick and the wheels can fall off that quick on, on a one event um, that's just in the icing on the cake or the one apple too many and then it's just this rapid breakdown of of psychological um, reactions and generally officers are not ready for it it's come out of the blue um, they didn't see it coming um, and then suddenly don't know what to do you know what how do i how the hell do i deal with this so you know really now no one is going to say now bottling up is the way to go and you've, you've had your own lived experience with, you know, mental health and trauma yourself. And you talk about that in the book when you were a younger, a younger man. And what is it about um, doing this work and also processing your own experiences? What, what have you learned? What are you most passionate about um, letting other people know? Really good question. Look, it's a variety of, of things. Uh, the reason, and I did think long and hard about you know, would I share my story? And the main reason that I did was that I thought any any prison officer with PTSD or police officer would identify with some of it. And the, the main point I wanted to make, which matched what I've seen, was I had no idea what was happening. It is so deeply psychological. I worked in the field. I had no idea of what was happening to me and it took me a long time as you know as I, I talk about to really get an understanding and there but times I would sit there and think this is me and this is my head and I've got no idea what's going on I've got no idea why I am distressed to the level that I'm distressed um, because at that point in time I thought my life was going okay pretty pretty much 
you know, I kind of knew, um, you know, I knew that Leanne was there. Um, but I would have said I had a pretty good high school, you know, as maybe was a bit depressive, but, um, I, you know, I had generally been pretty fine. And then, you know, one home visit and I've lost control of everything for, you know, many years after that. So I shared that just in terms of we can't always understand what is going on. And that's the complexity of PTSD. Um, or of any major depression, you know, we don't always know because, you know, our brains are just so complex. Um, so partly I just reflected that in terms of, well, um, and, and I've, I've mentioned Simon in the book, I think he's got a quote on the, the back page, you know, that um, he got back to me and he said, well, but, you know, you have to give more hope. I guess the the hope is that we, we can work these things through, you know, as, as difficult as they are, but we need to shift how we see PTSD. You know, we need to see that as, in a way, people that are, are paying the ultimate price, you know, for the work they do and, uh, and that they have a lot of experience about paying a price and I think have a lot to offer in terms of what needs to occur of how they could have been supported better. And you mentioned Leanne and you mentioned Simon. Just tell the listeners who you're referring to. Leanne is my twin sister who died um, when I was two and a half of leukaemia and I can't remember her. Um, and certainly the in me talking about that in the book, it goes into that um, in, in terms of the impact that that had on me. Um, a, a lot of it I wasn't aware of really and I wouldn't, in actual fact, in a different way. It's very different to what, prison office or police go through but I hadn't really processed any of it how could I I was a kid um, but it, you know it really psychologically devastated my mother and I was very much a part of that um, of which I had no real understanding of so um, you know that that um, was taking all my life to work that out but um, that was a huge personal experience and in going into counselling if you if you if you look back um well I, I was vulnerable from from the beginning and you know at risk of a trigger experience that I didn't understand you know when it came along and in terms of Simon that that's a colleague that I'd worked with for many years at one of the prisons that I went to and I, I utilized his objectivity in in writing the book and I he was the first person I sent a copy to to because um, one thing about writing a book, you, 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 I think I had it right, but you're not sure that you've got it right. And when Simon got back to me uh, and he said, you know, you, you brought, I think he said that I couldn't sleep that night after I'd read it, that you brought back to me the power of working in a prison. And um, he actually said that people had said to him when he left the prison work, that um, people that leave the prison work have a process of detoxing from it. He wasn't a prison officer, he was a counsellor. And he said, it's right, you know, it brought back the trauma for him of, of the work that he was doing. And so that, you know, I really thought, I really learned from that in terms of, well, you know, this, this even people that aren't prison officers still are traumatised by the work that, that they do. And um, yeah, so that, that's, that's Simon. And finally, when you were introducing yourself, you mentioned something called narrative therapy. Can you explain a bit more about that? I certainly can. Um, narrative therapy was pioneered by 
um, Michael White and David Epstein. David is from New Zealand. Michael is from Adelaide. Um, sadly, Michael died of a heart attack in 2008. Um, he was at that point known all over the world for his, his narrative ideas. Basically, what narrative is, um, is the people are the experts on their own lives. So I learned from him over many, many years the importance of listening to the story, not judging it, but hearing it. Um, the 2016 was very much about me not being the expert, but I was there to listen and to hear um, the, the officers' stories and to respond to that, um, which is quite different to what in, say, psychological field is often called psycho-ed. You know, we're the expert, we'll just tell you what you're going to go through. So it's a very different approach, very much based on people talking about their own experience. But Michael had a deep belief that um, everyone is the master of their own story and you just need to hear it and you need to help them to support them to, as he used to say, make these discoveries about themselves. So, so I was highly influenced by Michael and his magical way of looking at human experience and so Code Blue is written very narratively you know this is what people told me this is what I heard and then I've, I've added my own responses to that in terms of um, and, and look sometimes I'd sit with 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 um, prison officers and and I'd be saying you know you guys have got a very complex job you've got a very demanding job and you, and you know what you do the level of skill that you need to do it is is significant and almost have argument oh no 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 that's right no 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 it's just what we do you know um and and yet what you do do is uh is extraordinary but you have to stop and listen to it well bruce the book is a fascinating read i mean i think not only for people who work in this space but for anyone really um to to understand a bit more about people's experiences and yeah thanks for chatting to me today it's been an absolute pleasure, and as you've probably gathered, I could talk for hours. It's a topic of, of a great passion of mine, and if we can get more awareness, it's just awesome. Thanks to our guest, Bruce Perham. There's more information about his book, Code Blue, Prison Officer in Danger, and the work he does in the show notes. If you've been affected by anything discussed in this episode, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14. As always, thanks for listening. This has been another Smartfella production in conjunction with the Acast Creator Network. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.